0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. YJBM is a PubMed-indexed quarterly journal edited by Yale medical graduate and professional students and peer-reviewed by experts in the fields of biology and medicine. Each issue of the journal is devoted to a focus topic, and through the YJBM podcast, we will take you through the past, present, and future of the issue-subject matter. I'm Carrie ann a third-year student in the Department of Genetics.
1: I'm Kelsey, and I'm a third-year PhD student in the Department of Epidemiology and Microbial Diseases. And I'm Emma, a third-year
0: student in Cell Biology. In celebration of the 50th year of women at Yale College and the 150th year of women at the Yale Graduate School of Arts and Sciences, we're recording a special series of podcasts focusing on women in science and women at Yale. Today's episode will highlight the achievements of six women in science who have inspired us. We had a lot of fun researching this episode, but had a lot of trouble
2: narrowing down the list of women to highlight today. There are so many women, past and present, who have been incredibly impactful in STEM that we encourage you to check out. So, you know, go to Google, search women in science, and see what happens. Um, you could learn a lot of really cool things, just like we did.
0: The six women we are highlighting today are Jana Kiyama, Barbara McClintock, Rachel Carson, Gladys West, May C. Jamison and Marcy Bowers. We're presenting them in a roughly chronological order, beginning with Dr. Janaki Amal. Janaki Amal was a pioneering botanist and geneticist. She holds the title for a lot of firsts. The first Indian woman botanist, the first woman to earn a PhD in botany in the United States, and one of the first women scientists to receive the Padma Shri, one of the highest civilian honors in India. While you might not have known her name, you may be familiar with her work. She is most known for sweetening India's sugarcane industry. Today, India is one of the largest producers of sugar in the world, annually producing nearly 30 million tons of sugar. In the 1920s, this was far from the case. India actually had to import sweeter sugarcane from the east because the variety that grew well in India just wasn't that sweet. India wanted to be able to grow their own sweet sugarcane, which led the government to establish the sugarcane breeding station in Madras. This institute was run by C.A. Barber, with whom Janaki Amal would work closely. Together, C.A. Barber and Dr. Amal created hybrid varieties with sweetened sugarcane that would grow well in India, successfully sweetening India's sugarcane and reducing the country's reliance on imports. In her very productive career, Dr. Amal developed numerous species of hybrid crops that are still used today. E.K. Janaki Amal was born on November 4, 1897, in Tellicherry, Kerala, India. She was the 10th of 13 children from her father's second wife, and in total she had 18 brothers and sisters. Her father was a judge, but he also had a love of nature, which had a profound influence on Dr. Amal's life. Her father grew a garden, kept notes on the garden, and even wrote two books on the birds of India's North Malabar region. Dr. Amal attended Sacred Heart Covenant in Telicherry, obtained her bachelor's degree from Queen Mary's College, and then received an honors degree in botany from Presidency College in 1921. After graduation, she taught at the Women's Christian College in Madras. She received the Barber Scholarship from the University of Michigan which allowed her to travel to the U.S. and earn a master's degree in 1925. Dr. Amal went back and forth between the U.S. and India. She returned to India and taught at the Women's Christian College after obtaining her master's, and then returned to Michigan with the fellowship and obtained her doctorate in 1931, becoming the first woman in the U.S. to earn a doctorate in botany. She became a professor of botany in Maharaja's College of Science from 1932, to thirty-four, In 1934, she joined the Sugarcane Breeding Institute as a geneticist, where she developed a sweeter strain of sugarcane that would thrive in India, and this work would become her most notable legacy. Dr. Amal had an industrious career and worked at many different places and on many different projects. After leaving the Sugarcane Breeding Station, Dr. Amal moved to London to work at the Johnny Ness Horticultural Institute from 1940 to 1945. Shortly after joining, she published a paper titled Chromosome Diminution in Plants in the December 1940 issue of Nature. Chromosome diminution describes when a chromosome fragments and then a fragment is lost during mitosis. This had been described in animals, particularly nematodes before, but this was the first observation in plants. At the time Dr. Amal was working in England, it was the height of World War II. Imagine continuing to go to lab each day during World War II. Dr. Amal would have to take shelter from bombings at night and then report to lab in the morning. Despite these challenges, she continued her research at the John Innes Horticultural Institute and later worked at the Royal Horticulture Society researching medicinal plants. In 1945, she and her friend C.D. Darlington co-authored The Chromosome Atlas of Cultivated Plants. As written in the dust cover for the book, This book will be of service for teaching and research in economic and systematic botany, horticulture, and plant breeding. This was a tour de force reference detailing the chromosome numbers of around 10,000 species of plants. While working at the Royal Horticulture Society, she studied the effects of colchicine on plants, particularly magnolias. Colchicine doubles the chromosome number of plants, making them larger and faster growing, and fun fact, colchicine is also used in humans to treat gout. Dr. Amal returned to India to run the Botanical Survey of India. She also worked for the Atomic Research Center and as an emeritus scientist at the University of Madras after retiring. She was elected to the Indian Academy of Science in 1935, an Indian National Science Academy in 1957. She also received an honorary degree from the University of Michigan in 1956 and the Padma Shri in 1977. She died in 1984, but her legacy and plant varieties continue to be grown today. In an article written by her niece, her niece notes that Dr. Amal didn't like to talk about her life. She said, quote, my work is what will survive, unquote. Her work continues to be honored today through the E.K. Janaki Amal National Award for Taxonomy created in 2000 by India's Ministry of Environment and Forestry and remembered through plant species named after her. Janaki Amal is the eponym for a genus in the dogbane family, a species in the meadow beauty family, a cultivar of magnolia clobus that she developed, and a yellow hybrid rose. In addition to her research, Dr. Amal fought to protect biodiversity in India. At the age of 80, she spoke out against the building of a hydroelectric plant in Kerala, India, that would have flooded kilometers of forest land. Now, Valley National Park in Kerala remains one of the last large undisturbed forests in India. It is rich with biodiversity, including endangered orchids. Dr. Amal wanted to preserve Indian plants and to preserve the study of Indian plants by Indian scientists. She is remembered for both her research in cytogenetics and plant breeding, but also for her activism. There are two main articles that I used in gathering information on Dr. Amal's life and scholarship. One is an article in Scroll written by Gita Dr., Dr. Amal's niece, and another is an article in the Smithsonian Magazine by Leah McNeil. I'd recommend reading them if you'd like to learn more. Next time you eat some sugar, think of the work of Dr. Amal. I know I'll be remembering her work the next time I eat something sweet.
2: Wow, like Dr. Amal seems so interesting, Carrie-Anne. What's one of the most
0: interesting or unexpected things that you learned while you were researching her? That is a good question. There's absolutely so much, partially because I don't know much about plant genetics. So, really, any aspect of her work that I learned about was totally new and interesting. Like, I'd never thought about the number of chromosomes of 10,000 species of plants in her biggest work, and I'd never thought about using colchicine to change the number of chromosomes in plants to make them grow faster. So, that was all really interesting just from a biological perspective, but then I also found her advocacy work very inspiring and how she was able to use her power once she was recognized as such a leading science Scientist in India to argue for India's biodiversity and supporting research of Indian plant species in India by Indian scientists. And so she was really revolutionary and forward thinking and talking about the impact of studying these plant species and the impact on the environment and the impact of these environmental changes, particularly on women in her country, that really led her to have a broad influence outside. Side of her nature papers and her scientific publications.
2: The next female scientist that I'm really excited to highlight is Dr. Barbara McClintock. She's one of the pioneers in genetics and is well known for contributing to our understanding of the complex nature of genetic inheritance, which I'll explain a little bit later on. I was really excited to learn about Dr. McClintock's work as I did research for this episode because she happens to be my PI's favorite scientist slash celebrity she would want to have come work in her lab if she had a choice of anyone past or present. After learning more about Dr. McClintock's elegant experimental approach, it was really easy for me to see why she's a favorite of not just my PI, but of many scientists around the world. Dr. McClintock was born in 1902 in Hartford, Connecticut Woo hoo Connecticut, and she moved to Brooklyn, New York in 1908. All of her educational training was done at Cornell, where she received a bachelor's, master's, and PhD in botany. Although Dr. McClintock's degree is in botany, she became an extremely respected and influential member of the field of genetics. Ironically, Dr. McClintock pursued a botany degree because at the time, women were not allowed to pursue a degree in genetics. Dr. McClintock's groundbreaking work was done in the field of maize genetics. That's right, maize, like corn. While this may seem like a strange choice in model system, maize is actually a great model for learning about genetics and inheritance because every kernel of maize is from an individual fertilization event, meaning that you can analyze hundreds of offspring on a single ear of maize. This makes it ideal for trying to unravel the methods of genetic inheritance. After receiving her PhD from Cornell in 1927, Dr. McClintock went on to do postdoctoral studies in genetics at multiple institutions, including Cornell, the University of Missouri, and Caltech. Dr. McClintock's work was in the field of cytogenetics. Cytogenetics is the observation of genes, or DNA, under a microscope. This is a simple and elegant, yet extremely powerful system. As a cell biologist i rely on imaging a lot in my work and i really appreciate the power of observing a biological phenomena by eye overall dr mcclintock's work provided key insight into the concept that dna within chromosomes can move all dna in our cells is divided into chromosomes each containing many functional units or genes along their length the prevailing idea at the time that dr mcclintock was beginning her career was that DNA was stationary and could not be rearranged within chromosomes. Her work challenged this concept. Dr. McClintock's early work in the 1930s began to push against this idea. She, along with graduate student Harriet Creighton, provided the first experimental evidence of chromosomal crossing over during meiosis, or the cell division process that leads to gamete production. We all have two copies of each chromosome, one from our mom and one from our dad. During gamete production, pairs of chromosomes will swap portions of DNA to increase genetic variation of the gametes produced. Dr. McClintock's groundbreaking work in this field was the first to show that physical movement of DNA occurs during this key biological process. In 1941, After leaving a professorship position at the University of Missouri at Columbia for fear that she would never receive tenure, Dr. McClintock was offered a one-year position at the Carnegie Institution of Washington's Department of Genetics at Cold Spring Harbor. This turned into a full-time position. She formally retired 26 years later in 1967, however she remained affiliated with Cold Spring Harbor as a research scientist until her death in 1992. Dr. McClintock's most groundbreaking work was her discovery of transposable elements, or transposons. These are called jumping genes, because transposons are essentially pieces of DNA that can move themselves throughout different regions of the genome. Combined with her work on crossing over events, Dr. McClintock began to show that the genome is not stationary, but is in fact subject to alteration and rearrangement. She made this discovery while working on trying to understand the DNA elements and genes that regulate the color of each kernel in an ear of maize. She studied a locus called dissociation or DS, located on chromosome 9 of maize. In the late 1940s, she first described that DS was able to change its position within the chromosome, publishing this finding in the 1947 to 1948 Carnegie Yearbook. She also described activator, AC which was another DNA element capable of moving throughout the genome that was required for DS movement within the genome. Many years later, in the 1980s, scientists finally discovered that AC encoded a transposase enzyme that facilitated the movement of both loci. Dr. McClintock showed that the AC and DS loci could move in and out of the genes coding for kernel color, turning them on and off, resulting in changes of kernel color. This work, however, initially was not well received. At the time, scientists believed that genes were fixed linearly along chromosomes, and that any sort of mutation or disruption of a gene was considered a permanent change. The concept that genes could be disrupted by these jumping genes, and repaired when they removed themselves from the genome, didn't fit into the static idea of genes, and it wasn't until the 1960s that these mobile genetic elements were discovered in other organisms. Today, scientists know that transposons are present in the genome of many species, including a large percentage of the human genome. Dr. McClintock continued her work on transposons and other genetic elements throughout the entirety of her life. Today, her discovery of mobile genetic elements is recognized as one of the groundbreaking discoveries of genetics. As such, her career has been full of many impressive awards, achievements, and firsts. In 1944, she was the third woman elected to the National Academy of Sciences. In 1945, she was the first female president of the Genetics Society of America. Now, let me remind you again that she was prohibited from getting a genetics degree when she was in school. In 1971, she received the National Medal of Science Award from President Nixon. In 1981, she was the first recipient of a MacArthur Foundation grant and received an Albert and Mary Lasker Award. This award is sometimes referred to as a pre-Nobel prize, and in this case, it was absolutely correct, because in 1983, Dr. McClintock won the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine for her work on mobile genetic elements. She was the first woman to have an unshared Nobel Prize in this category. Dr. McClintock received many other awards and honors, and her discovery of fundamental genetic principles shaped the way that we understand the genome. She has also inspired many other women to pursue science enthusiastically and passionately. She passed away in 1992, leaving behind a massive scientific legacy.
0: Wow, Emma, I just learned so much, and I completely understand why Dr. McClintock is your PI's favorite scientist. I can't believe that she couldn't get a PhD in genetics at the time, and then became president of the Genetic Society of America. That's Pretty amazing. What was your favorite thing about Dr. McClintock's life or work that you learned while researching her?
2: Well, I, I sort of I knew that I was going to find something exciting when I started researching Dr. McClintock because she is my PI's favorite scientist. But I didn't really actually know um, a lot about what she did. I had never taken the time to look into it, and so as I started to look into it, I was just really impressed by the fact that. Dr. McClintock was able to do all of this pioneering work just using microscopy by literally looking at chromosomes and seeing the physical changes that happen when these transposons move throughout the genome. And so it was just so simple and elegant and in some ways not what I was expecting to find for such groundbreaking work. But sometimes I feel like the most groundbreaking work is sometimes just so simple and elegant and beautiful. Yeah, she's just so incredibly impressive. I completely understand why she's my PI's favorite scientist.
0: So I know you do a lot of microscopy in your current research right now. Have you thought about like how that relates to what Dr. McClintock did and what your PI has set up her research program to be?
2: Yeah, I mean... Dr. McClintock and our lab are both focusing on the nucleus, which is where the DNA is stored. Um, Our lab is really interested in the mechanical aspects of nuclear biology. So how like forces are impacting the nucleus and its function. Um, And so similarly to Dr. McClintock, we use microscopy to learn new things, not quite And as simple of a system and straightforward of a system as she was using, which was more of just light microscopy, but we, yeah, we, we look at more, you know, complicated systems, but there, we, there is that same elegance of, you know, if you want to know more about a protein, you can tag it with something fluorescent so you can see where it is and then see where it goes and see what happens to it over time. And that's definitely a concept that we use in, um, in our research.
0: I just love the elegance of the system and like the idea of seeing is believing. Oh, totally. And it's certain, it's hard to, yeah, you can't argue with a, with a video. Exactly.
2: Yeah. Well, it's funny cause it's like, yeah, you, you can't argue with a video or with a picture. And yet Dr. McClintock's work was so controversial at the time, even though she like She literally saw this, which is what is kind of mind boggling to me that it took so long for this to become so accepted, you know, seeing is believing, but you got to get enough people to see it in multiple organisms. And then they're like, yeah, okay, maybe you've got something here. Like when you're going against the dogma, it's, it's crazy. So yeah, so impressed that she was able to just push back against that. And, you know, she was right. Go Dr. McClintock.
0: I really love that idea of pushing back against the dogma and actually that transitions really nicely into the work of the third female scientist we're talking about today, Rachel Carson. If I can wax poetic a moment, I'd like to start by describing my favorite science mantra and that is, science does not happen in a vacuum. Science does not happen in a vacuum. The data we generate are always part of a larger story. Our findings are put out into the world to be interpreted by others and used to guide further research. The inventions we develop and make available for general use can affect more things than we intend. The natural world is complex and full of multiple interlocking variables, unlike the controlled environments that we set up in our labs. Rachel Carson not just recognized this, but she brought it to the attention of the entire world she believed that all American citizens should be made aware of the risks and benefits of new technologies, particularly synthetic pesticides. She implored society to understand humankind is part of nature, not separate from it. She trusted that people without formal scientific training can understand and evaluate scientific concepts when they are communicated properly. Now at a time when accurate scientific communication is more important than ever, it is a great opportunity to take a look at the influential life and legacy of Rachel Carson. When I say the name Rachel Carson, you may already think of her book Silent Spring, or you may think about the synthetic pesticide DDT and the consequences for baby bald eagles. I know that's the only part of the story I learned in history class. But the legacy and achievements of Rachel Carson's career span far beyond the effect of one chemical on the environment. Carson was one of the first people to publicly argue that science does not happen in a vacuum and that we cannot separate humans from the environment. What we design and build and put out into the world can have far-reaching, long-term, and delayed consequences. And we need to be aware of these consequences to make informed decisions. Carson's scientific training gave her the skills to synthesize numerous publications into a single story for general audiences. Anyone who has gone through qualifying exams knows how difficult it is to keep track of the literature, place each publication in context, and to evaluate scientifically sound, robust studies. Yet Carson does this seemingly effortlessly, leaving a legacy that outlasts the specific crisis she was addressing. I learned a lot of this information from a PBS American Experience documentary on Rachel Carson, I cannot recommend the documentary highly enough. It is very thorough and entertaining. It is almost two hours long, so there's a lot I cannot cover about Rachel Carson's life in this short episode that is covered in the documentary. If you're interested, please check it out. It is free on Amazon Prime. Rachel Carson was born in Springdale, Pennsylvania on May twenty seventh, 1907. Her mother was an admirer and student of nature and passed this love for the natural world to Carson. Carson attended Pennsylvania College for Women, now Chatham University, and graduated in 1929. It was here she discovered a love of biology. After graduation, she took a research position at the Woods Hole Marine Biological Laboratory where she fell in love with the ocean and marine biology. She then attended Johns Hopkins University for graduate school. She graduated with a master's in zoology in 1932, but unfortunately she was unable to stay in school to earn her Ph.D. She had to leave graduate school and get a job that would provide enough money for her to care for her mother and her sister. She found that job with the U.S. Bureau of Fisheries, where she wrote radio scripts and supplemented her income by writing articles for the Baltimore Sun. Carson worked in federal service for 15 years and even became the editor-in-chief of all U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service publications. The PBS documentary calls her a, quote, writer by nature, biologist by training, unquote. It was in combining these two skills, writing and biology, that her work became and remains so influential. In 1941, she published her first book, Under the Sea Wind. However, its release coincided with the attack on Pearl Harbor, and her book was not very popular. In 1951, she published The Sea Around Us, which was an international bestseller. It topped nonfiction bestseller charts for a record number of weeks and remained a New York Times bestseller for 86 weeks. It received the National Book Award for Nonfiction and Burroughs Medal in Nature Writing. It is described as a biography of the sea, and I am really looking forward to reading this soon. Her third book was published in 1955 and called The Edge of the Sea. It focused on ecosystems of the eastern coast of the United States, and Carson focused on humans' relationship with nature and our impact on the world around us, while she snuck in important facts about the environment and climate change with amazing descriptions of sea life, submarine technologies, and geology. At the time, Carson was writing and researching, the relationship between humans and nature was changing. People believed the goal of science was a triumph over nature and that human beings were separate, not a part of nature. Instead, the role of humans was to control and dominate our surroundings. Just think, this was the time of the atomic bomb and the use of chemical warfare during the world wars. Out of this development of new chemicals and the desire to control nature came the invention of synthetic pesticides. These chemicals were sprayed widely and without caution and without investigation into their broader, long-term consequences. If you didn't die immediately from exposure, then they were considered safe. I recently finished reading Silent Spring, which was published in 1962. It was one of those books that I've heard about and referenced forever, but I had never actually read. I sort of thought because we don't use DDT anymore that it wouldn't be relevant. I was wrong. Carson writes beautifully, with clarity and lyricism in her descriptions of nature, and her words are more relevant today than you might expect. I won't say it's the easiest read. Some parts really get you down... Carson will follow a beautiful description of an animal and its important function in the environment with a description of death by pesticide. She also describes the negative long-term impact of synthetic pesticides on human health and safety. I would like to read a quote from the last paragraph of the book, but don't worry, I'm not going to spoil the ending. Quote, The control of nature is a phrase conceived in arrogance born of the Neanderthal age of biology and physiology, when it was supposed that nature exists for the convenience of man, unquote. Importantly, Carson didn't just write everything that was wrong with the world. Instead, she offered concrete suggestions for ways to use science and how to perform scientific research to do better. She writes, quote, The best and cheapest controls for vegetation are not chemicals, but other plants," And she gives examples of the relationships between marigolds and nematodes, beetles and weeds, the natural balance in the environment to control what we consider pests. I could talk for hours about everything in Silent Spring that she brought to light, but instead I would just encourage you to read it for yourselves and think about how her arguments may apply today. After the release of the book, Carson was considered a, quote, hysterical female Luddite and a communist, according to the PBS documentary. Her revolutionary support for studying the broader consequences of scientific advancements was not seen fondly by the chemical industries. At the time she published Silent Spring, Carson herself had been diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer. She kept her diagnosis secret so her book wouldn't be seen as simply an angry woman taking her diagnosis and impending death out on the chemical industries. She wanted her evaluation of the scientific literature to stand on its own. One story that I think highlights how women, including Carson, were treated at this time was that she went to the doctor for a lump and the doctor said it wasn't cancerous and that she didn't need to do anything or worry. Turns out, the doctor knew her cancer had metastasized and believed that he should tell a husband this fact. A woman couldn't handle it. So he lied to her about her health. She then sought a second opinion months later after feeling a second lump, and this doctor told her the extent of her diagnosis. She quickly started radiation treatments, but the first doctor denied her six months of treatments because he thought she as a woman was too weak to know the truth. Carson died in Silver Spring, Maryland on April 14, 1964. Her work challenges us to continue to think about the impact of humans on the natural world and challenges scientific research to fully investigate the long-term and unexpected consequences of advancements. Remember, science doesn't occur in a vacuum. Humanity is not separate from the natural world. We are a part of it, and we must respect it. Carson knew the importance of passing this on to the next generation. Her fourth book, A Sense of Wonder, was published in 1965 shortly after her death. The book captures the importance of sharing nature with children and argues that adults should nurture children's sense of wonder for the world. In remembering Carson's legacy, we as adults should keep this childlike sense of wonder alive. It can drive new ways of seeing the world, new scientific discoveries and advancements, and new ways to increase respect and support for our environment.
1: So you really seem to like Rachel Carson, Carrie Ann. So I just want to know, is there like a favorite part about her research or um, her activism
0: that really shocked you or you didn't know before you even started researching her? I really knew nothing about her until i had watched the pbs documentary on her life and she's actually one of my dad's favorite scientists and favorite role models and he quotes her all the time and so i'd always been like okay yeah she's great but now i am like super into wanting to read everything that she has written because she not just writes so beautifully but also makes really impactful statements that make you think about the world today. It's not just relating to the 60s. It's it's so much broader than just pesticide use.
2: Do you now have a better appreciation for why your dad was was so excited about her?
0: Yeah, uh, absolutely. It just echoes a lot of our thoughts on environmental impact that maybe we're more accustomed to saying now about how man shouldn't dominate nature, man is a part of nature, and that man needs to respect nature. In the 60s, this was just not the way of thinking. And so I really respect her for being able to come out against this dogma, against this way of thinking, and really take a lot of harsh ridicule and criticism and threats from the chemical industry. And so she had such strength to just like stand up for what she thought was right. And I also, I really love the ocean. And so I just like connect with her love of the sea so much. She actually worked at the Marine Biology Institute at Woods Hole, where my PI teaches a course in the summer. So I'm able to go to Woods Hole and see the campus and like hang out uh, the water. And it is like absolutely beautiful. And so I just like, next time I'm there, can think about Rachel Carson also walking these exact same streets, being in this exact same waters. And it's just amazing to sort of share that location with such an influential scientist.
1: Gladys West was born in 1930 and grew up on a rural area south of Richmond, Virginia. Her family were sharecroppers, also working in tobacco factories and on railroads. Gladys didn't want to continue that lifestyle, so she studied hard and she graduated as valedictorian and earned a full ride to Virginia State College, which is now Virginia State University in HBCU. She earned a B.S. in mathematics in 1952 and taught math for a couple years before returning to earn her M.S. in math in 1955. After earning her MS, she was hired without interview at a Naval Proving Ground in Virginia in 1956. Thus, Proving Ground later became known as the Naval Surface Warfare Center, Dahlgren Division, where she was a programmer. She was only the fourth Black hire at the facility and one of the few women working there at the time. Shortly after enrolling, she also went back to earn a second master's degree in administration from the University of Oklahoma through a distance education program. This is just incredible to me how much education she earned in such a short period of time. When she first started at Green, she was hired to do hand calculations, and in an interview with a reporter, Gladys recalled that she did hand calculations on a merchant calculator, and that she was hired as a mathematician, but After Dahlgren purchased the Stretch computer, which is actually the IBM 730 computer, and it was known as Stretch, once they purchased this and they were in a few um, areas in the country that had one of these computers, uh, she began programming the computer. The IBM Stretch computer was described to be the most powerful computer at the time. And if you don't know what what it looks like, I suggest you Google it because it's a literal black box. It's chunky and dark with switches everywhere and a token needle that bounces back and forth over something that looks like a speedometer. This is not the programming that I think of today. And unlike computers today, the computer's goddess was using couldn't always be trusted. When describing how she had to analyze all output and double check calculations, she said nine times out of ten they weren't completely right, so you had to analyze them and find out what was different to what you expected. It's this computer that she calculated the precise estimates of the shape of the Earth, which became the basis for GPS technology and why you might be familiar with her today. This began when she became the project manager for the CSAT radar that could remotely sense oceans. She was recommended for commendation in 1979 after putting in hours of overtime. She was just an incredible worker and kept learning her entire life. In 1986, Wes published Data Processing System Specifications for the Geosat Satellite Radar Altimeter, which is a 51-page technical report from the Naval Surface Weapons Center. I looked it up and I tried to read it, but it's incredibly dense. The guide was published to explain how to increase the accuracy of the estimation of geoid heights and vertical deflection, important components of satellite geodesy, which is what's currently used to um, inform GPS estimates and why GPS is so specific today. I tried to skim through it and it's, it's just a behemoth of a technical report. I did find one quote which says that the, to provide the Department of Navy with a global database of 10 centimeter precise radar altimeter measurements. This data will allow for improvements in the gravitational models required by advanced submarine-launched ballistic missile systems. This was uh, like originally used for the military, but eventually becomes part of our everyday lives. After 42 years at Dahlgren Naval Base, Gladys retired in 1998, but her legacy didn't end there. As GPS became more and more prevalent in our lives, we're obviously starting now to recognize all of the work that she did early on when GPS wasn't even under consideration. It was just a way to improve the military's operations. In 2018, she was inducted into the highly selective Air Force Base and Missile Pioneers Hall of Fame, and the same year she was included in the BBC's 100 Women of 2018. I would also like to point out that Gladys never seemed to stop learning. Even 20 years after her retirement and after a severe stroke and breast cancer, She completed a PhD in public administration from Virginia Tech. This woman just cannot be stopped, and she's now Dr. Gladys West.
2: So, Kelsey, what was one of the favorite things that you learned about Dr. West while you were researching her?
1: So, it's amazing enough that she had to do this programming on extremely old IBM computers, but then at some point in one of her interviews that I was reading, she says that she had to double check everything that came out of the computers, where at that point, I was like, why are you doing this? It's like, so you're feeding it in, and then she had to double check everything by hand to make sure all the calculations and the equations that they're feeding into it are, are giving results that are on par with what they were expecting. I would hate to be doing that all the time in lab. I... I double check myself, I would double check myself on like two plus two. So it was amazing to me that she did all this work and, and taught herself programming and, and for each computer that they, ooh, that they got over time, they, she had to learn a different type of programming for it. And then just the amount of effort and the detailed amount of work that she was doing was really striking.
2: The next woman in STEM that I'm really excited to discuss is Dr. Macy Jemison. She's had a varied career in both STEM and the arts, but is most well-known for being the first African-American woman to go to space. Dr. Jemison was born in 1956 in Decatur, Alabama. Her family moved to Chicago a few years later. She graduated from high school in 1973 at the age of 16. In addition to her academic strength, Dr. Jemison was also a talented dancer and ultimately had to choose between a career in STEM or dance. As I'm sure you can guess, Dr. Jemison chose to pursue a career in STEM and she went to Stanford University for her undergraduate studies. She graduated in 1977 with a bachelor's degree in chemical engineering and African American studies. Dr. Jemison then pursued a medical degree from Cornell. During medical school, she worked at a Cambodian refugee camp in Thailand and led a study in Cuba for the American Medical Students Association. After receiving her M.D. in 1981, Dr. Jemison joined the Peace Corps in 1983 and worked as a medical officer in Sierra Leone and Liberia. In 1985, Dr. Jemison opened her own private practice in Los Angeles. That same year, Sally Ride became the first American woman to go to space. This historic space flight rekindled a desire that Dr. Jemison had had since she was young to become an astronaut. So, she decided to apply to NASA that same year. However, the Challenger disaster on January 28, 1986, which left all crew members on board dead, led to NASA halting all new applications for its astronaut program. The tragic loss, however, did not deter Dr. Jemison from pursuing a career at NASA, and in 1987, she reapplied to the astronaut program and was accepted. In fact, she was part of the first group to be accepted to NASA after the Challenger disaster. Dr. Jemison was selected to join the STS-47 crew as a mission specialist. There were seven astronauts total on this mission traveling on the space shuttle Endeavour. Side note, this space shuttle is on display at the California Science Center in Los Angeles if you wanted to go see it in person. The mission was a collaboration between the U.S. and Japan. On September 12, 1992, Dr. Jemison became the first African-American woman in space. The crew returned to Earth on September 20, 1992, for a total of seven days, 22 hours, 30 minutes, and 23 seconds in space. This mission involved 44 research experiments in a range of fields from material science to biotechnology. The life science experiments occurred in a range of experimental systems, including the Japanese koi fish, Cultured cell lines, flies, and more. Dr. Jemison was a co investigator on two bone cell experiments. I work with cultured cells here on Earth, and I can only imagine how much more challenging it would be to do in space. In 1993, Dr. Jemison left NASA after six years of service. Interestingly, it was the hugely popular Star Trek TV shows that initially sparked Dr. Jemison's interest in becoming an astronaut. She watched African American actress Nichelle Nichols play New- Lieutenant Uhura and set her sights on becoming an astronaut herself. After fulfilling this goal, Jemison was asked by actor LeVar Burton if she would be interested in appearing on Star Trek Next Generation. Dr. Jemison said yes and became the first real life astronaut to appear on the show. I can only imagine how many other young people she inspired to literally shoot for the stars. Just as she was originally inspired by the show. After leaving NASA, Dr. Jemison has done a wide range of things in STEM. She's held professor positions at Dartmouth and Cornell. She's authored books for children and adults. She started an international space camp called The Earth We Share through her nonprofit, the Dorothy Jemison Foundation for Excellence. This camp is for students ages 12 through 16 to improve their scientific literacy and problem solving skills. She's also created many other events through this foundation. Dr. Jemison also created the Jemison Group, which is a, quote, technology consulting firm integrating critical socio cultural issues into the design of engineering and science projects. She's currently leading the 100 year Starship project, whose goal is to make human travel outside of our own solar system possible within the next 100 years. This project is a highly collaborative effort working to push innovation in a wide range of fields to make this goal a reality. The technologies invented as a result of this project could also help us improve our lives here on Earth. Dr. Jemison is doing even more than this. If you want to learn more about her, I encourage you to check out the website for the Dorothy Jemison Foundation for Excellence. Dr. Jemison has also received many awards and honors for her work. She was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame, National Medical Association Hall of Fame, and Texas Science Hall of Fame. She has also received many other awards, including the National Organization for Women's Intrepid Award, the Kilby Science Award, and more. Dr. Jemison is admirable for her willingness to push the envelope throughout her career. I admire her perseverance and commitment to improving scientific literacy and moving our technological capacities forward. I know that she's inspired many young girls to pursue a scientific career and has also opened up doors that will make it easier for them to do so.
1: Okay, so uh, what was your favorite aspect of Macy Jemison's like crazy career that spanned every direction that it could span? I mean, that's
2: really what my favorite thing was about it, was the fact that Dr. Jemison really has kind of done it all in a sense, or, you know, not done it all, but done a lot. Um, She's sort of covered a very wide range of study and work by having a bachelor's in chemical engineering, so like engineering, and then having, you know, her medical degree, medicine, whole other field, and then going into space, again, completely different. But like, you know, when you think about what it what would be valuable, you know, on a spaceship, like if I was going into space, I would want someone who had an engineering background and a medical background because if the ship broke down, you know, maybe she could help fix it. And if something happened to me, you know, she's a doctor. So like, you know, I, I think having that combination of biology and also physical sciences just gives you a really unique perspective on the world. And clearly it has led her to lead this extremely interesting life. She's done so many cool things. I mean, she's been on Star Trek, for goodness sakes. And, you know, she's still at it today through her work with the Jemison Group, continually sort of pushing the envelope on, you know, the human condition. And her career is just so impressive in its breadth.
0: I love that she also authored children's books along with everything else that she has done. I love that it's like,
1: yes, this is one more thing.
0: <laughs> I mean, Dr. Jemison is
2: so impressive because she's pretty much done every letter in the acronym STEM. You know, not not everyone does every single letter. She's just she's really doing it all in STEM. So so impressive. I definitely will not be hitting every single one of those letters with the same force that she seems to have been able to accomplish.
1: The sixth and final woman we're going to discuss is Dr. Marcy Bowers, a pelvic and gynecological surgeon. So we will be discussing male and female genitalia in the context of this field. Dr. Bowers is the first trans woman to practice transgender surgery. She began her career as a gynecologist at the University of Washington before transitioning genders in 1997. She has stated that she doesn't identify as a transgender woman, but rather a woman who has a transgender history. She trained under the famous surgeon Dr. Biber in Trinidad, Colorado. At the time, Trinidad, Colorado was considered the sex change capital of the world due to the number of surgeries taking place there and the innovation and research on gender affirmation surgical technique. It was here that Dr. Bowers became a pioneer in gender affirmation surgery, also called sex reassignment surgery. She developed a surgery called the simple metoidioplasty, not sure that I'm saying that right, um, where the labia and clitoral tissue is used to construct a penis, as well as an innovative penile inversion surgery that is part of gender affirmation surgery for trans women. Her one-stage procedure that is part of the male-to-female transition is noted for, quote, utilizing tissue that is sensory, secretory, pink, and non-hair-bearing to line the inner labia. The quote goes on to say that embryologically, this mucosal tissue is derived from what did line the inner labia when all fetuses were female. It goes on to say that this procedure that she has pioneered is most compatible with the normal developmental process had the male-to-female patient been born female. Her webpage has many positive testimonials to how great the surgery is, and more striking is just the mass number of positive comments on how the surgery has changed the lives of those who have undergone it. From my understanding, this is a very personal and pivotal surgery for those who are transitioning. And having a surgeon who specializes in this surgery and is willing to perform these surgeries and research new surgical methods is extremely important. Patients discuss how they can feel comfortable in their clothes now, comfortable in their selves, their sexual lives, and their daily lives. Additionally, because Dr. Bowers had transitioned herself, she has that added feature of empathy that everybody wants from their physician you want your physician to be sympathetic but when your physician can actually be empathetic and and knows what it feels like to go through the pain that you're going through particularly a type of pain that comes with a mental health component that seems extremely important and it seems like the patients really really weigh in on that and that's why she has like a two-year-long waiting list for patients to have gender affirmation surgery by her. She's also helped to create some of the first medical education programs for gender transition surgeries in the US. These initiatives are located at Mount Sinai, New York in 2016, then at Denver Health in 2018, and recently, Women's College Hospital in Toronto opened an initiative in 2019. As of the summer of 2019, she had performed over 2,300 sex reassignment surgeries, primarily male-to-female surgeries in addition to clitoral restoration surgeries that she performs on patients who have suffered from genital mutilation. She's also been critical to proving that gender affirmation surgeries are not experimental, an argument once used to limit insurance coverage for the procedures. Additionally, she was a long-standing GLAAD board member and a member of the National Board of Directors for for the Transgender Law Center. Her efforts in the transgender community are clearly not limited to her surgical skills. I'll end this short piece on Dr. Bowers with a quote that she once gave to a reporter. She said, assigning gender identity on the basis of genitalia makes about as much sense as assigning it on the basis of height. Biologically, we're much closer to each other because everyone starts out with a primordial female anatomy. So everything a male has, a female has, and vice versa. It's just a matter of how the cards are shuffled. And as one of her patients said, Dr. Bowers' importance to them is because she can shuffle these cards.
0: Kelsey, it was really interesting to learn about Dr. Bauer's new surgical methods that she's developed, and her story is really inspiring. What was your favorite thing that you learned about her while researching her?
1: So I don't know if this is the most interesting aspect about her, but I thought it was fascinating is that every time I went to research her, a lot of the stuff that came up was just how booked she is to perform these gender reassignment surgeries. And they were saying like in New York, she can only do 10 surgeries a year because of how booked she is at the Mount Sinai center. And then she's also booked at her, um, current, uh, like surgery location in California. So I, I think it's a testament to how important it is, um, as a person's seeking gender reassignment surgery, to have a physician that understands that. Right. And it's that a, she's a, incredible surgeon of her own right. And then B, she understands the patients who are coming in, so she can probably relate to them and has a, just a better understanding of what they're going through before surgery, during surgery and and recovery from surgery, and then the lifetime, lifelong implications of the surgery. So I think um, that's something to consider is that it, there should, you know, as we expand gender reassignment surgery and and just how well it's performed and, and the um, training for it. Now she's like set up some training scenarios of uh, training programs so that surgeons learn how to do this. I think it's important to consider that we should be trying to seek out people who would understand what it means to go through those surgeries and hopefully feed them into like the surgery training programs for it because it means a lot.
2: Yeah. Empathy is, is so important in medicine. Like if you know, your doctor understands what you're going through, it helps so much. So it's so great that she's able to provide that for all of these transgender individuals, because that sort of surgery is obviously very taxing on your physical. And I would assume also probably your mental health, just having that physician, I'm sure is so impactful.
1: Yeah. And I, she likes, graduated medical school before she had transitioned. So it seems also important that, you know, opening up things so that transitions can occur at the time in the life the individual wants it to occur because I'm sure it's happened before in the past where where people are never able to transition and are practicing physicians. And maybe as it becomes more available and ingrained in the medical practice, then it could help with providing more situations of empathy. Well, it was so fun today
2: to learn more about um, some truly amazing women in science. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I had an absolute blast both researching the scientists that I was looking into and also learning from both of you about um, the scientists that you researched.
0: Oh, absolutely. I I love being able to take the time to dive into some rabbit holes about some areas of science I didn't know about about before and in doing so also learn about the lives of these truly inspirational women. It's, it's been, it's been great to to learn a little bit about both.
1: Yeah, I agree. I found myself just consistently trying to find more information. The more uh, like amazing that I realized these women were like, we, we all know that they're amazing, but we, uh, at least for me, I only knew some aspects of some of their stories. So uncovering like the full, their full history and being kind of creepy and trying to learn every little thing about them. Like, it made them feel both more relatable and kind of less relatable at the same time because they're did so many amazing things.
2: Yeah. Learning about these women has made me so proud to be a woman in STEM. And I'm so excited to continue to learn more about, you know, other women in STEM over the course of my career. I think it's, it's so, it's so great for us as women in STEM to, to learn about you know the contributions of other women and to be inspired by them to continue our own scientific pursuits.
1: There are many people behind the scenes that you never get a chance to hear. Thank you to the Yale School of Medicine for being a home for YJBM and the podcast. Thank you to the Yale Broadcast Center for help with editing and publishing our episodes. Thank you to the YJBM editorial board especially our editors-in-chief Amelia Hallworth and Wei Ying. And thanks to you for tuning into this episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. We'd love to hear your feedback and questions, so feel free to tell us your thoughts by emailing us at yjbm at yale.edu. If you enjoyed our podcast, please share it on SoundCloud or Apple Podcasts.